Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by Sam C., an unfucking insane level member of the show. What's up, unfuckers, subfuckers, eurofuckers, unconuckers, down underfuckers, bottle pack, turk, and pitch fuckers? We're kicking off year two with a big one, so settle in. We received so much love for our one-year anniversary in the form of emails, social posts, new members to the show at buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR, and coffee purchases to subsidize UNFTR and support the Unkachog Nation members who brew our native roasted coffee. Remember to join us for free on Substack to get our essays, unftr.substack.com. Remember, we never charge for content. And just a reminder that if you have auditory processing issues, there is a musicless feed linked in show notes. As usual, we'll catch up with all of you at the end of the show, where we'll follow up on your comments, talk to you about a new book being released that's near and dear to us, and give you a timeline on new stuff, all after we kick off our second year with a double-shot episode, a regular unfucking smashed up with a quickie, a veritable UNFTR orgy, if you will. Don't be gross. Sorry. Listen, I'd originally intended for this just to be a quickie, but my mind wandering as it does, I thought it was better to blow it out a bit and expand on things. Forgive the re-explanation for our legacy on fuckers, but quickies are shorter takes that focus on three separate but related topics. And those subjects today are three progressive members of Congress that I find independently fascinating, but together they paint a full and interesting picture of the leftist movement in the country. And before we get to them, a little backstory. This quickie idea came about from a conversation I had with my buddy Mike, a.k.a. Mikey5, a.k.a. The Mangler. Mikey is around my age, and we've known each other for a long time. He's super knowledgeable on New York politics, especially the retail hand-to-hand shit. He's not especially ideological, but he's very funny and really cynical. He was lamenting the lack of congressional talent in our area, and then he asked me who I liked. If there's anyone I thought was really smart in Congress, and not politically savvy or glib, but if there were any really deep thinkers. So when I rattled off a few, he admitted to knowing a couple in passing and to having no idea about the others. But it makes sense. There are 535 members of Congress and they're always changing. It's little wonder that someone like the Mangler, who can probably name county chair people in New York going back to the 1800s, has zero fucks to give about a current House member from Oregon. And truth be told, most House members are rather forgettable figures or over-the-top personalities. Like old Hank Johnson, the one responsible for my favorite congressional hearing moment of all time. You know the one, where he asks a general if moving a base to one side of Guam might actually cause it to tip over? Or Butthead Gates, MGT, and Bobert. Even my beloved scenery-chewing AOC is overplayed and overcovered. And while I can't place 100% confidence in these numbers or methodology of these polls, a couple of surveys that I found indicated that only two in five Americans can even name their congressperson, which feels about right. So today I wanted to introduce you to three different progressive House members. They might be familiar to you, which is great. And if they're not, that's fine too. That's why we're here. We'll review why I selected these three in particular, but before we get there, I thought it would also be helpful to understand what the hell we even mean when we say progressive. This works even better to help lay the groundwork for next week's episode on isms in America generally, where we explore the misunderstood landscape of parties, theories, and ideologies in America to identify who we actually are and who stands for what. But since we approach this podcast from a so-called progressive perspective, it seemed appropriate to talk about progressivism on its own as we warm up for next week and to dig through the history to uncover the roots of the progressive movement. Oh, snap. We're covering flow? I love flow. Um, I'm sorry, flow? He means flow from Progressive Insurance. Don't bite, Max. Damn you, 99. 
seriously though, Max, you gotta promise me one thing. What's that? That you never rap again. <laughs> I second that motion. Is this seat taken? Cause I'm coming through. Crowley gave up his. Maybe you should too. Don't like my dress, Mitch? Cause my ass attacks the rich. Pass the mustard filibuster. I'm a baddest fucking bitch. I gotta this is the story of a political pundit Who looked at the world around him and just said fuck it Gives the middle finger to authority and says kiss my ass But instead of a revolution he started a podcast it's Just what the world needs Another basic white guy who started a podcast But it's fun because he curses All through the podcast I'm fucking the Last week, we talked about how you have to look back in order to go forward. I want you to listen to something, unfuckers. Close your eyes to hear the whispers of a ghost and listen to how these words echo still today. We stand for a living wage. Wages are subnormal if they fail to provide a living for those who devote their time and energy to industrial occupations. The monetary equivalent of a living wage varies according to local conditions but must include enough to secure the elements of a normal standard of living. A standard high enough to make morality possible, to provide for education and recreation, to care for immature members of the family, to maintain the family during periods of sickness, and to permit a reasonable saving for old age. This is a recording of Teddy Roosevelt from 1912, recorded in New York by Thomas Edison. The digital file can be found at the Library of Congress website, but the preservation master is held in the home of the man who uttered these words at the dawn of the progressive movement in the United States. In fact, they're drawn from Roosevelt's stump speeches for his second and non-consecutive bid for the presidency, marking the birth of the progressive party in America. Now sit back and let me tell you a tale of this man from long ago. Many historians consider Teddy Roosevelt's campaign for a third term to be an act of vanity, that he simply could not stand being on the sidelines as a citizen. Turns out that running for additional terms is a rather Rooseveltian thing to do. It was before term limits were amended to the Constitution, and though it was considered the right thing to do, respecting the precedent of George Washington, Roosevelt believed it was also his right to be elected to two terms since he'd merely inherited his first term as vice president to William McKinley, who was assassinated. Plus, he believed that his successor, William Howard Taft, simply wasn't up to the job to stand firm in the face of the industrial giants of the era. This period, the Taft years between 1909 and 1912, are pivotal in the history of the progressive movement and warrant our attention because many of our issues today are indeed echoes of history. Theodore Roosevelt was a complex individual, to put it mildly. His entire existence was a break against convention. A scrawny and sickly child in his youth, he dedicated himself to a rigorous daily exercise routine he would carry out for the rest of his life. He thrived on being the biggest and loudest person in the room. He had an insatiable appetite for knowledge, authored more than 40 books in his lifetime, 
held multiple offices from New York City Police Commissioner, New York Assemblyman, Assistant Secretary to the Navy, Governor of New York, Vice President of the U.S., and ultimately President of the United States. A political resume that remains arguably unmatched to this day. It's said that his own party members would groan whenever he rose to speak in the New York Assembly, which was all the time. In fact, he was such a principled thorn in the side of his own party and anyone who held an opposing view to him that his nomination to vice president was thought to be the only way to shut him up by his own party members. His sudden ascension to president due to the assassin's bullet came at a time when the United States was just beginning to flex some muscle at the dawn of the 20th century. To say that Teddy Roosevelt was larger than life is an understatement of the highest order. Critically, for the world and our story today, we were emerging from the initial stages of the Industrial Revolution and gathering economic momentum and political prominence on the world stage. As president, Roosevelt was the first president to be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for negotiating the end to the Russo-Japanese War. He would pit Central American nations against one another and confound nearly everyone, including members of his own administration, by beginning construction on the Panama Canal. He clashed with the great industrial titans of the time as the self-proclaimed trust-buster-in-chief. He forged ahead with the building of the Great White Fleet, a powerful navy to rival that of even Great Britain. And when he couldn't find a war of his own to fight, he sailed the fleet around the world to send a message that he was ready, willing, and able. He was perhaps the most ardent lover of the outdoors to ever hold the office and protected more federal land than every other president combined. He forever lost favor with many in the South when he invited Booker T. Washington to dine with him in the White House. Now contrast that with Woodrow Wilson, who was the first president to ever show a film in the White House. His selection? The Birth of a Nation, the radical white supremacist film that inspired the founding of the Ku Klux Klan. Because he served more than a century ago, it's difficult to put into words how large Roosevelt loomed over the United States and, in fact, the world. So full disclosure, Teddy Roosevelt is far and away my favorite president. I've consumed several biographies, made frequent trips to his home on Sagamore Hill, and even used to quote from the man in the arena. Theodore Roosevelt once said, the credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, and spends himself in a worthy cause. Damn, bruh. This might be even more basic white guy than your love of Miami Vice. I know. But as I grew as a writer and moved past the, quote, men of their times arguments, I was also able to see his faults more clearly. Roosevelt was an ardent imperialist. His exploits in Cuba were horrific. His treatment of indigenous people was brutal and severe, as was his view of them. And the land he put aside made possible by continuing a policy of forced expulsion of native people, who he considered immoral and inferior. Everything Roosevelt did was big, even when he fucked it up. He was a man who believed in manifest destiny wholeheartedly. He viewed America as the greatest nation ever to exist and would have appointed himself king for life if possible. His bloodthirst and desire for war was so intense that he would badger Woodrow Wilson in person through letters and emissaries to join the war in Europe as the leader of a volunteer battalion when he was 58. 
To Roosevelt, there could be no greater capstone to his career than to die on the battlefield. Now, Wilson gleefully reveled in turning Roosevelt down in his private journals as he disliked him intensely. But ultimately, each of Roosevelt's sons would be called to duty and his son Quentin would fulfill his father's destiny by dying in the war. And the news was delivered to Roosevelt by Wilson himself and it would haunt him for his few remaining years. Hey, Max, why are you spending so much time on Teddy Roosevelt? Ah, yes. Thanks for staying on the script and helping to move the narrative along, Manny. Sure. Oh, great, Max. My pleasure. Who writes this shit? History often contains clues that are useful in the present. I wanted to fully understand what was happening at the time of the first progressive wave. Who was behind it? What were the factors that contributed to its rise? And where did it go off the rails? Are there patterns to spot or lessons to learn? The four years between Roosevelt's second term and Wilson's first feel similar to where we are. And I think that's where we should start. The Great War was not yet on the horizon, but the United States had spent the prior eight years rapidly militarizing. But at that moment, the country was in peacetime. Global trade and tariffs were the central issue of this period. More on that in a minute. The period was marked by slower growth than prior years, but growth nonetheless. There was a market crash, then a recovery. A housing bubble in Florida, true story, and then a recovery. Laws and institutions still favored the ultra-wealthy and labor conditions remained piss poor. Mega corporations and trusts began to consolidate wealth and interest and fought to exert massive influence over the markets, public policy, and legislation. There was a movement towards progressivism reflected in both parties, though Taft proved ineffectual at pushing back on the massive corporate interests of the day. With Roosevelt out of the picture, the titans of finance and industry continued their push back against the forces of labor and regulations. But the break that wound up giving birth to the movement came from a particular piece of regulation and a book called The Promise of American Life by Herbert Crowley. The first major biography on Teddy Roosevelt was written by Henry Pringle in 1931. Now, I like referring to biographies written within a generation of a subject because the language is authentic and the lens a little more contemporary to the figure. So, as Pringle writes, quote, Published in November 1909, The Promise of American Life had a profound effect on the thought of subsequent political commentators. It was peculiarly suited to stimulate Roosevelt, for Crowley's philosophy was, in a sense, an extension of his own, end quote. What Crowley was extolling was the moral virtue of a government as protector, a guardianship relationship with the people of the nation. Now, this was in stark contrast to the libertarian independence strain of the country that characterized the 19th century. The rugged individualism and frontier spirit that even Roosevelt himself embodied was shifting with the idea that the government could do more for its citizens than just clear land and issue deeds. Remember, this was also the period that Milton Friedman held up as the best period of American invention. You know, the Industrial Revolution from the 1870s to the turn of the century, that is what libertarians still hold as the best part of our history. And that's what Milton Friedman held up as the best part of his policies. But it was an impossible time for workers on the ground and completely, completely different than what we have today. So anyway, this line of thought inspired the belief that government could exist to serve the interests of the people to protect its weakest inhabitants and guarantee the so-called square deal of what Roosevelt termed new nationalism. 
So with time on his hands and these words having a profound effect on the former Rough Rider, Roosevelt began seeking opportunities to regain public confidence and re-enter the limelight. While it seems silly today, his moment came when his hand-picked successor, Taft, caved to corporate lobbying interests and failed to promote progressive tariffs. The Payne-Aldrich Tariff Act was seen as a giveaway to Northern industrialists who Teddy had fought so hard to contain. The wealthy of this period fought to keep the most important tariffs in effect because it was helping them essentially create domestic monopolies and it discouraged competition. Taft's inability to beat back the corporate interests and further Roosevelt's agenda was enough to send the former president off the rails and back into the spotlight. Roosevelt wasn't the only national figure seeking the nomination under the Progressive Party banner, mind you. In fact, the leading organizer was a man named Robert La Follette, who has been mostly lost to history, sadly. This is in large part due to Roosevelt's long shadow. Once he threw his hat back into the ring, he became the leading contender to lead the new party almost overnight. Roosevelt's new nationalism was the model for the newly formed Progressive Party, though most colloquially refer to the party as the Bull Moose Party. This was affectionately named for Roosevelt, who was actually shot during a speech and kept going, saying it would take more than a bullet to stop a bull moose. So yeah, he was pretty much a psychopath. Anyway, to see how much history does repeat itself, here are some highlights from the Progressive Party platform of 1912. Manny and 99 will guide us through the highlights as I offer the echoes of the platform today. We pledge our party to legislation that will compel strict limitation of all campaign contributions and expenditures, and detailed publicly of both before as well as after primaries and elections. You can find this in the stalled HR1 for the People Act today. Minimum wage standards for working women to provide a living wage in all industrial occupations. That's the fight for a livable wage, which continues today. The abolition of the convict contract labor system, substituting a system of prison production for government consumption only, and the application of prisoners' earnings to the support of their dependent families. The ongoing battle against contract prison labor and privatization. The protection of home life against the hazards of sickness, irregular employment, and old age through the adoption of a system of social insurance. The origin of the discussion around social safety nets. The development of the creative labor power of America by lifting the last load of illiteracy from American youth and establishing continuation schools for industrial education under public control. Free public education. We favor the union of all the existing agencies of the federal government dealing with the public health into a single national health service without discrimination. Single-payer health system. The existing concentration of vast wealth under a corporate system, unguarded and uncontrolled by the nation, has placed in the hands of a few men enormous, secret, irresponsible power over the daily life of the citizen, a power insufferable in a free government and certain of abuse. The battle against the influence of the 1% rages on. The natural resources of the nation must be promptly developed and generously used to supply the people's needs, but we cannot safely allow them to be wasted, exploited, monopolized, or controlled against the general good. Protecting public lands and waterways, responsible development and conservation remains an issue made ever more pressing by the effects of climate change. We believe in a graduated inheritance tax as a national means of equalizing the obligations of holders of property to government, and we hereby pledge our party to enact such a federal law as will tax large inheritances, returning to the states an equitable percentage of all amounts collected. Republicans have made the inheritance tax a third rail issue, though much of the wealth in this country is transferred rather than earned. 
We denounce the fatal policy of indifference and neglect which has left our enormous immigrant population to become the prey of chance and cupidity. Immigration Reform So that was the birth of the Progressive Party. Those were the guts of the platform, which ring true today. What's interesting is that Taft's Republican platform and Wilson's Democratic platform contain much of the same sentiment, and the public was kind of confused. Though Roosevelt won a stunning 27% of the popular vote, he wound up splitting the Republican votes and delivered Wilson a resounding victory. Here's another rare clip from Wilson's victory speech thanking the Republicans. To all you Republicans that helped me win, I sincerely like to thank you. Because now I got the world swinging from my nuts. And damn, it feels good to be against. The progressive movement would be shelved upon Roosevelt's defeat and as the world descended into war. The 1920s would usher in a new wave of 1% madness as the rich widened the gap over the working class. And of course, Everything would change in the 1930s with the Great Depression. It would take a complete collapse of every institution in the nation to bring about the second attempt at progressive reform, once again by a Roosevelt. But the FDR years are for another day. With the roots of the progressive movement and platform under our belts, let's fast forward to modern times and have ourselves a little quickie, shall we? When the world is a mean and nasty little place Finding the truth can be a little tricky Don't go punch yourself in the face Just listen to an unfucking quickie So we blew over the most progressive era of the nation's history during the FDR years, but I do promise to come back to them at a later date. There are three basic points behind telling the progressive origin story. One is to demonstrate the similarities between the circumstances and the mindset between then and now. Two, to infer that many of the gains that were made during the FDR years have steadily eroded and set the pendulum back to its original state. And three, to highlight the resurgence of the movement as told by three House members today that signify the movement in new and exciting ways. So let's meet them. I'm Lucky Day. I'm Ned Niederlander. I'm Dusty Bottoms. So together we're the Three Amigos. I think by now you know my fondness for AOC. Uh-uh, uh-uh. Max, don't you even... No, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. You know I love her, but as I said, she tends to chew up the scenery, so I wanted to take a deeper look into the squad and beyond to show just how strong the progressive bench is shaping up. Out of the 220 House Democrats, 95 identify as progressive. That's a fucking lot. Of course, not all progressives are the same, and some are still Democrats in sheep's clothing, but still... It's a major shift to the left within the Democratic caucus, as evidenced by the recent power play over the pairing of the infrastructure and Build Back Better bills. Pundits on both sides of the aisle were left pretty much stunned over the fact that the progressives, organized by one of our quickie subjects, outmaneuvered Republicans and centrist Dems by holding the line on pairing these bills. They outwitted Jersey boy Josh Gottheimer, put enormous pressure on their counterparts in the Senate by showing unity, and even put Nancy Pelosi in a corner. Nobody puts baby in a corner. Here's Sam Cedar's reaction on Majority Report. For the first time in my recollection, progressives have basically said, we're willing, we're not taking the half sandwich or the quarter sandwich. I mean, I remember Harry Reid saying at one point, like, don't let, you know, take the half sandwich. 
Don't <laughs> let the, the the good be the enemy of the perfect. I think they basically said, like, you know what? This is not good. Sam's right. They didn't take the half sandwich. I don't think this can be overstated. Well, as of this recording, I'm not sure what happens next, obviously. This moment was huge. Not only did they rebuff party leadership in the House, they outfoxed the problem solver caucus members who are led by Gottheimer. And as I was putting this together, it occurred to me that this particular caucus probably deserves its very own unfucking. We'll see. The bottom line is that it's a bipartisan caucus that is funded by dark money conservative groups on Wall Street. So if you happen to find yourself at a problem solver caucus meeting, make sure to send them a polite message. This sucks and it's horseshit, but I'm too polite to say anything because I'm a class act. So that brings us to quickie subject number one, Pramila Jayapal. As the American Prospect wrote, quote, ultimately, nearly 30 members publicly opposed Pelosi's delinking efforts, with Jayapal having close to another 30 in her back pocket. Pelosi delayed the infrastructure vote from Monday to Thursday and then gave up on Thursday night, end quote. So Jayapal, a House member from Washington, was the organizing brain behind this progressive stand, and she's emerged as a formidable member of the progressive squad. Prior to Congress, she spent 20 years in global public health with nonprofit agencies, received her bachelor's from Georgetown, and an MBA from Northwestern. According to Progressive Punch, which ranks and grades members on progressive issues, Jayapal ranks near the top of all Democratic members, earning her an A ranking and a rating near 100% on votes that matter to progressive causes. I'm the first South Asian American woman ever to serve in Congress. Um, I am also one of only 14 immigrants out of 535 naturalized now serving. Um, and, you know, if you look at the history of Congress, over 11,000 people have served. There have only been 79 women of color who have ever served in Congress. Jayapal is not just an effective leader and organizer. She's a thoughtful spokesperson for several causes, often speaking from deeply personal experiences. Whether it's her experience in the hyphen as an Indian-American immigrant or having an abortion when she was younger to honoring her child's decision to come out as non-binary, Jayapal always leads with empathy, votes her conscience, and possesses organizing skills that make her an effective legislator and leader of the Progressive Caucus. And she is, by the way, the leader of the caucus. Then there's Ro Khanna of California, who's an indefatigable progressive legislator who regularly appears on both conservative and liberal news outlets, podcasts, the House floor, you name it. Ro Khanna is everywhere and is an extremely thoughtful and intelligent voice for the new left. But citizens expect more. They want us not just to look at generic poll numbers or battleground districts. They want us to lead with our hearts because they are leading with their hearts. And so the question today, Mr. Speaker, is when will the elected representatives be worthy of the courage of our citizens and the grassroots? Kana was born in Pennsylvania, but now represents the belly of the tech beast in Silicon Valley. He graduated Phi Beta Kappa from <gasps> the University of Chicago with a degree in economics, no less. Yeah! Then he went on to get his law degree from Yale University, taught economics at Stanford, and law at Santa Clara University. And like Jayapal, Khanna's voting record ranks near the top on progressive issues, with a lifetime record of 98.8%. 
And lastly, there's my personal favorite of the trio, Ayanna Presley. Presley is power and lived experience bundled into one brilliant ball of awesome. Raised by a single mother, Presley excelled in school in Chicago, where she was named most likely to be mayor of Chicago by her classmates. But instead, she moved east to pursue a degree from Boston University. Unfortunately, she was unable to finish and instead dropped out to care for her mother, but this didn't dampen her spirit to serve the public. She went on to work for John Kerry for, I think, about 13 years. She was the first woman of color elected to the Boston City Council and ultimately elected to Congress in 2018. If you're a veteran and you say, I'm going to fight for veterans, you know, no one has takes issue with that. If you were a laborer and you say, I'm going to fight for workers' rights, or you're in the recovery community, you say, I'm going to fight the recovery community. Only women are asked to be apologists about affirming their very humanity and dignity and rights, and only black folks. Like Kana and Jayapal, Presley also ranks near the top among her progressive peers with a lifetime rating of 97.3% on progressive votes and a solid A rating from Progressive Punch. She currently sits on the important financial services and oversight and reform committees, has vocally supported police and immigration reform, tussled with Republicans literally at every turn, called Democratic leaders out on the carpet, and something else that she says is for all of the young women out there seeking to live their truth. This is my official public revealing. I'm ready now because I want to be freed from the secret and the shame that that secret carries with it. And because I'm not here just to occupy space, I'm here to create it. Now, this might not seem like a really big deal, but known for her Senegal twist braid, Presley publicly revealed that she had alopecia and had lost all of her hair. She made a beautiful and sensitive video and appeared on several news channels to have a conversation with young black girls in particular about living their truth and demonstrated incredible vulnerability. And that's the thing I wanted to end with and why I think Presley is my favorite. Life's circumstances prevented her from achieving her academic goals, and yet she persevered. She let down her guard to live freely and openly because she wanted to demonstrate authenticity to young girls who looked up to her. And as a trio, they have a powerful story to tell. These are extremely bright people. In an era where it seems like the stupid shall inherit Congress, they stand head and shoulders above the noise. All three lead with extreme empathy, particularly Jayapal and Presley, with their willingness to bring real human issues and vulnerabilities to the floor of the House. By allowing themselves to be seen in such a way, it gives power to all of those who are unseen by the mechanisms of power. And all three are persons of color. Scholarly, brilliant, powerful, empathic, and brown. So here's an interesting fact. The Progressive Party still exists as a formal party and not just a wing of the Democratic Party, but it's only registered in Vermont and Oregon. This is something to understand clearly when we talk about backing third parties in the country. Our system makes it really, really difficult to register third parties nationally. In fact, according to Ballotpedia, of the 225 state-level ballot-qualified parties in the United States, only three are recognized in more than 10 the Libertarian Party in 35, the Green Party in 22, and the Constitution Party in 15 states. 
only the Democrat and Republican parties are listed on the ballot in all 50 states and Washington, D.C. And that's why I cringe when anybody talks about the need for another party. I know it's tempting, but the structural mechanisms and funding required to do this are nearly insurmountable. It's why I personally advocate for a progressive takeover of the Democratic Party instead. It's a lot easier to move this ship to the left, believe it or not, than it is to attack it from the side with another party. Third-party advocates, some of whom I greatly admire, such as Chris Hedges, are in their right minds in terms of their desire to affect real change from the outside, but I find it wholly impractical to continue tilting at this windmill when we can change things from within. And the evidence to support my feelings on this is right in front of us at this very moment. 10 progressives in the 90s, 96 today. We can do this, but we have to remain focused. Now, we should also talk about what it means to be progressive in today's parlance. We covered several items in the Bull Moose platform of 1912 that could just as easily be redrafted for today, and that's well and good, as we should understand that history, but there are four core principles of the progressive movement today that help us level set, and they are, one, fighting for economic justice and security for all, two, protecting and preserving our civil rights and civil liberties, three, promoting global peace and security, and... Four, advancing environmental protection and energy independence. This is all well and good, but where the rubber meets the road is in many of the subjects that we've covered thus far and will continue to cover in the coming years, such as centralizing areas of our economy that relate to climate justice and building a renewable energy strategy that fits into a nationalized, smart and efficient grid system. Undergirding social welfare reforms with bulletproof legislation and funding that can't be so easily chipped away at as it has in the past. Criminalizing offshore tax havens that pierce the corporate veil and place board members and shareholders at risk of running afoul of the law. Doing away with private prisons and reforming the criminal justice system to focus on restorative measures instead. Passing HR1 for the people to ensure access at the polls and to remove dark money from politics and so much more. I had a great conversation recently with Jay from Best of the Left about all of this, and he made a point that I, I just can't get out of my head. The guy really is brilliant. He has such a grasp of a wide array of topics that it's humbling. So we were talking about the two-party system, and he made the point that we're more parliamentary than we might believe. Essentially, if Republicans are always trying to caucus with the libertarians and the conservatives and Democrats are always trying to appease the progressives, then we really do have a parliamentary form of sorts, at least in terms of the way we legislate. So it's true that we don't have a parliamentary system that relies on alliances to elect a leader, such as Canada or what we're witnessing right now in Germany at the moment. But in terms of the legislative process, I think he's dead right. And we're seeing this now as progressives hold the line on the pairing of these bills. Regardless of what happens next, this was huge. No more half sandwiches for the progressives. They're a true squad right now, and they have the hot hand. How they play it going forward is extremely important, especially given the frailty of the Biden cabinet, in my opinion. And Biden himself is no Roosevelt, neither Teddy nor Franklin. He doesn't have the savvy or will of an LBJ or a Reagan to promote an agenda and manipulate Congress, and he lacks the inspirational quality of an Obama that might galvanize one side of the aisle. So change will have to continue from the bottom up, knowing all the while that the Trump wing of the Republican Party is plotting the opposite agenda and working the ground game harder than ever. The pendulum is still swinging, and it has yet to come to rest, so there's work that needs to be done. 
And hopefully, you're as heartened as I am by the figures we cover today and so many more that we'll cover in the future. The progressive wave is coming in fast, and it's leading with love. Won't you come along for the ride? Every woman, every man, join the caravan of love. Stand up, stand up, stand up. Everybody take a stand. Join the caravan of love. Stand up, stand up, stand up. The future is brown. The future is brilliant. The future is now. Here endeth the lesson. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for the time of your life? The show notes calling out listeners one by one. Show notes, bloopers, and thank you. It's so much fun. Ooh, what'd you think? Was that fun? Yeah. You liked it? I did. I had so much fun writing it. I think it's my obsession over Teddy Roosevelt all these years. But coming to terms also that he was kind of a fucking dick. Never meet your heroes. Never meet your heroes. Can't meet him because he's dead. Been to his house so many times that I feel like I know him. <laughs> and I wish I could go talk to him and be like, dude. Fucking relax on the native people. What are you doing? Well, in Night at the Museum, he ends up dating Sacagawea. Which is just so fucking problematic <laughs> on so many levels. Oh, my God. So, hey, before we kick things off, we have a different kind of book love today. And this one's a little closer to home. Many of you might have heard the voice memo from original unfucker Bobby McDee from Ireland in our anniversary episode. And like many of the originals from Derek R. and Knudsen and Nettie Hugger Alex to Bookstore Kim, Tracushin, Crin, and C. Tyson, and so many more, we've kindled some terrific off-pod and online relationships with our originals. In an exchange a while back, Bobby McDee, who's actually author Robert McDermott, sent us the galley of his newest work of fiction titled Jonestown. He thought we'd get a kick out of the inclusion of a fuck Milton Friedman reference. Full disclosure on a couple of things. Number one, Bobby did not ask for this. And two, I'm no Oprah Winfrey, so I don't intend to make this a habit because it's not practical from a time perspective. But one evening, while suffering from writer's block, I opened the galley and started reading Jonestown. And several hours later, I was done. Now, I don't read fiction much anymore because of all my time is taken up writing on fucking the Republic. I could not put this book down. It hooks you quickly, and then the twists and turns are unrelenting. I, I, I loved it. So if you're into fiction... And fair warning, it gets a little dark, but that kind of fits my, I think, my sensibility. And if you're down to support an original unfucker, please order Jonestown by Robert McDermott. Like I said, he didn't ask for this, but I wound up actually sending him a quote for the book and, and praising it in an email. And, and I thanked him for helping me through a frustrating bit of writer's block. So we're going to include a link in show notes and we'd love unfuckers to help him crush this book launch. So well done, Bobby McDee. Uh, there are two other books in book love today. One is, and they're both what we referenced in the episode, obviously. The one is by Henry Pringle, titled Theodore Roosevelt's The Biography. And the other is The Promise of American Life, the updated edition by Herbert Crowley. You can find both of those where, 99? Bookshop.org slash shop slash pod. That's right. That's our bookstore. And for pod love, we have Majority Report with Sam Cedar. He's so fucking smart, it's scary. Anywho, let's kick off show notes by thanking our amazing 
new members. These are unfuckers who graciously decided to contribute monthly membership donations to support the show. You can find our new membership benefit tiers at buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR or following the membership link on UNFTR.com to find out more. So we have some new names and some familiar names here. So here's a new one. Joe K is a member. Said such a wonderful podcast to listen to and end every show waiting for the next. Lara E, an original unfucker, said, I could not possibly love this podcast more. I came to you from best of the left. Thank you, Jay. Cheers to Max Manny and 99 on your one year anniversary. Cheers to the best podcast ever and to Max, the brilliant and hilarious host. What a brilliant first year. Thanks, Lara E. CJL is now a member. On this special anniversary, I've gone back to the beginning and started all over again. It's interesting to see how your show has grown and changed over the first year. Thanks for everything you do, all of your hard work. Love to 99, who is awesome, and Manny, who is a hilarious voice when things get heavy. He is indeed. Marie M. is now a member, found you through Pitchfork, came to America via Canada after being smuggled out of Prague as a toddler during the Russian invasion of 68. Holy shit. I'm the daughter of a Holocaust survivor and the first in the family to graduate college. Fuck Milton Friedman. 99 is awesome. That is kick-ass welcome. And hey, our buddy Obese Andy is now a member. Said, the best. I am often more in agreement with some far-left podcasts, but they can lack the charisma, meticulous research, and excellent production you fellas have going on. Here's to many more years. Thanks, Obese Andy. Now, not all donations come by way of membership, by the way. Some people will drop inspiring notes and send a one-time donation when the spirit moves them, like at Eating Waste who bought the team three coffees and said, just got my first paycheck after months of unemployment, been wanting to support for yonks, and love the pod. FMF OBV, obviously. I love that. This is truly, truly amazing that everybody has supported us in the way they do. So, lots of stuff happening on uh, social media. 99, what's going on over there? Yeah, so Bob Knudsen, hey. he checked in and he said, woohoo, <laughs> it's the first unfucking versary. Thanks to Unfucking the Republic for making me and all of us unfuckers feel like family. Ah, he's the fucking best. So Nathan E. said, happy birthday, UNFTR. <laughs> the amount of clarity that you all have granted me in the short life of this pod cannot be overstated. Fucking phenomenal. And lastly, we have Ish McGinty in the big rig here. You're <laughs> a fucking soldier, man. Both thumbs up to you. <laughs> So over on the Twitters, we heard from at Got Shirley, best podcast ever right up there with hardcore history. Wow. I love that any party affiliation can learn from it and hopefully realize that we have more in common and that the enemy isn't the other party, but those who wish you make it so. Wow. And Max, <clears throat> you do have a great voice. Thanks, Got Shirley. Deep State Sledge said, I would recommend this pod for anyone who likes being informed. I would too. And fellow self-described basic white guy and reformed libertarian at Tommy Lee Meyer said, Just finished the one-year anniversary episode. I've learned so much in the past year. And all thanks to Max, Manny, and obviously, the amazing 99. Thank you all. <laughs> and then over on Instagram, we had some feedback. So Starlotti, I feel like we haven't heard from Star her Starlotti! She said, happy anniversary to 99 Manny and Max. Thank you. And then Eskimo Prince said, I honestly can't get enough of this show. Then Dan L said, love, love, love the show. Heard about you from Best of the Left about a year ago. I'm guessing that might make me an early listener. I've literally turned about 25 friends onto you in FTR. I'm a pissed off citizen who, at this point, doesn't bother to feel bad at the least bit of empathy for the willfully ignorant and stupid anti-vaxxers <laughs> and anti-maskers who contract COVID 
contract. I have a contract with COVID. <laughs> who contract COVID and die. Tough luck. You made your own bed, asshole. Oh, Lord. Oh, and fuck Milton Friedman. <laughs> Dan. Hey, you know, some days you have to get it out. No, oh, I know. You know, I, I, I feel that too. But we'll talk about some absolutes later on. <laughs> and then the last we had from Justin J, who said, great fucking podcast. I started listening after I was sent from Pitchfork Economics. As an engineer that inspects bridges, can you unfuck how we are investing and maintaining our physical public infrastructure? I can assure you what I see every day cannot be solved by the amount offered in the bipartisan bill. Justin, thank you for that. I can't remember which episode it was, but we actually went through the recommendation that was more than 10 years old that the infrastructure in the United States would require something in the order of $4.5 trillion over that 10-year period. That 10-year period passed, and the new bills that we're talking about are still not as much. Excellent point, Justin. So, Justin, can you tell me how bridges are made? I don't understand them. I don't understand them either. Like, how do you get them down in the ocean? <laughs> yeah, and uh, right? I, I'm serious. Please let me know. <laughs> yeah, that would be super cool, Justin. You know, just send us a quick email to let us know how yeah. bridges are made. I'm sure it's no big deal. Well, as usual, 99, we received a bunch of amazing emails and messages from unfuckers filling out the form on UNFTR. And I want to start with a really great email from our friend Derek R. This email really struck a chord with me. I'm going to try to get through the meat of it here really quickly. You mentioned in the anniversary special that the fairy tale of the, quote, land of the free, home of the brave is just that, a fairy tale. And like you, I truly believe that language and narrative matter. So he made uh, some points about the feelings of immigrants as well and how his grandfather had come over and immigrated to the country. And then he left a quote from Ken Burns' special in the Statue of Liberty that says this, quote, America is not an actuality, but it's a potentiality. We have to remember that the universe will not see somebody like you again in the entire history of creation. So it's up to you to become a dot, a paragraph, a page, blank page, chapter in the history of creation, end quote. As usual, an extremely thoughtful message. And what I wanted to address specifically is a mea culpa of sorts, because Sometimes when I'm in the rhythm and, and driving towards these conclusions, I will double down on some absolutes. That's what I was talking about before with, you know, absolutes. There are no absolutes, not in politics, not in anything, not in life, not in love, not in nothing. There's no absolutes. There's just a spectrum. And when, when I read his words, it really resonated with me because all you have to do is talk to an immigrant that comes to this country and still believes in the magic of this nation. And we know in how, how many, in so many ways, this nation has let people down once they're here and that we don't foster, you know, social welfare programs with love and with creativity. We don't meet people where they are. All of these things that we unpack here in Unfucking the Republic are true, but it can also be true that we are still a pretty magic place for people coming from other war-torn parts of the world other parts where their freedoms aren't necessarily as extreme as what we have here, even though our freedoms don't necessarily reach the extremes of some other countries. So, yeah, it is a spectrum. And Derek was absolutely right to call me out on this particular point, because even though America is flawed, it is still somebody's fairy tale. Uh, Jacob W., this is a good one. I need some help from you guys to narrate through some family issues. I was raised conservative Christian my whole life, and I was taught that communism is the most evil thing in the world. The Democrats are trying to force abortions and install a dictatorship. I've grown since then, educated myself to know that this is all a lie, and right-wing politicians feed rural populations because they're susceptible to believing it due to their little to no interaction with anyone that disagrees with them. 
My family still supports, strongly supports Donald Trump, and I don't know how to go about even talking to them. My wife is both white, black, Native American, and part of the LGBTQ plus community. Donald Trump actively wants to take away rights from everything that my wife is. How do I even talk to or want to be around people who think that's okay? Would love to hear your opinion. So I just have a little note here that says, Max in 99, she'll discuss. <laughs> so this definitely gets back into the meeting people where they are. But what do you do when you, when where somebody is, is in a place that is just so filled with rage, disinformation, and hate that it's impossible to pull them out of it? There is no absolute answer. The approach is, it's multi-pronged. You try your hardest and you try to educate and you try to meet them where they are and give them resources and hear them out. At a certain point though, if it is hopeless and it's bad for your mental health and your well-being and the safety of your family, your chosen family at this point, sometimes it's okay to distance yourself. Yeah. Derek A, by the way, said, Hey, 99, Manny and Max. Given our nation's proclivity for military spending, I have an idea that might unfuck the Republic. Two new military branches, the Climate Force and the Poverty Force. God, can we make room with Space Force in there? Jeez. Again, thanks for all you do. Fuck RR. Yeah, dig it. I would say, Derek, that our MMT climate industrial complex episode, and maybe even the 9-11 and Afghanistan episodes, were all sort of hinting in this direction, but you just sort of laid it out there and said, you know, what, like what that could be. We absolutely need to, with military grade speed and emphasis, create some sort of climate force. We need to do it like quickly. And a poverty force is really about creating a, an American work core. So yeah, dig it. Uh, G Money said, love your show. Been listening about six months. Cool. Then you've caught the highlights. Uh, I've learned so much listening to your podcast, but wondering if you could do an episode on foreign sanctions, especially economic oppression of American imperialism on the nations in the Caribbean, Latin, and South America. Well, G Money, dig this. We're going to be doing much more on the Caribbean and Central America for sure, which is why we wanted to lay the groundwork with the Washington Consensus show. There's no clear timeline for us to really revisit South America just yet. But we'll see. But we do have to dig into the Caribbean uh, and we are going to be hitting Central America. And those will be extensions of the Washington Consensus episode and the bridge to our immigration episode. So stay tuned. Uh, CJL, Max Manny 99 love the show so much. You do such good work. I can't imagine the hours it must take you to put each together. I wondered what you thought of the idea of having a guest discuss topics of interest. It might be a nice break from the intensive research you do and offering a different ideas to your take on situations. So, you know, it's funny is I've actually thought about that periodically and, and dropping interviews and maybe incorporating more current items into regular episodes. And I'd actually like to kind of put this back on the unfucking ecosystem to hear whether or not that would be a welcome addition to the show. Now, I don't foresee changing up the format or the cadence of our core unfuckings or quickies, but as we grow, it's certainly an option to periodically drop this kind of show. So I'll put that out to the unfuckers. If you think that that's a decent idea, uh, let me know because, you know, we might be able to work on that for 2022. Nathan S. said, loved last week's episode. I do have a question for the show notes. My two favorite podcasts each week are UNFTR and then surprise, Bill Maher. <laughs> I believe that the two complement each other in many cases are calibrated. I agreed this style is different. I was surprised to hear your comment that uh, you believe Maher is Islamophobic. Might be naive, but never gotten that sense from him. Let's see. Would you be able to provide an example of where you've seen this reflected from Bill Maher? Other than uh, that, I respect your opinion on his show. Keep doing what you're doing, and I learn from you every week. Fellow Mets fan, parentheses, sadly, Nathan S. Thanks for this, Nathan S. Appreciate you as always. So there's certainly some crossover in our tiny base of listeners with Mars' massive audience. 
which makes sense. And some of you are actually taken aback by my accusation of his Islamophobia. And without getting too deep into it now, you can look at The Guardian, Salon, Al Jazeera, and others that have written pretty extensively about his feelings towards Islam. So it's worth checking that out. Before the show, I did find a link to an opinion piece that was in Al Jazeera that I think is worth a look if you're interested, and we'll, we'll stick that in there. And Obese Andy said that, I know you've covered much of it already, but I'd like to see a detailed look into the myth of trickle-down economics. Sure. Uh, maybe a deep dive into the philosophy, concept, and theory of economics as a whole. So funny enough, Obese Andy, I have two books that are staring at me right now that relate to this, and it's nagging at me. So I might inject an episode into the plan over the coming months. So I, I really appreciate you igniting that flame again. Alex P. said, as you know, Kellogg's and the IATSE are striking with many others in the works. Unsurprisingly, the media does not care to cover these part of your Tyson principle would be cool if you could keep everyone up to date on these strikes and how we can help. Uh, yeah, Alex, we are cooking up a full unfucking on labor and unions in the U.S. The biggest issue that I have actually is finding a single thread to pull on because it's just such a rich topic. So it's, you know, sadly, it is taking me a very long time, but it is on the map and in the immediate future. And to his point on Tyson principle, giving something for the unfuckers to do, I don't know that there's much that unfuckers can do to support the IATSC unless you're in the entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. But for Kellogg's, do your research, see what they're striking against if you agree with it, and see what products Kellogg's owns and make your own choices to buy or not buy them. And lastly, before we close, I know this was a really long one. If you have made it this far into the episode, God bless you. We appreciate it. We had a few reviews. Tara Laney said, this podcast is really entertaining. Love the skit about AOC's dress. Hey, thanks. Raul0274 said, by far the most informative podcast ever and gave us five stars. Medic Mike 18 said, great show that I found while on vacation, which was good because he was able to binge it. And MJ White 86 brilliantly crafted to provide the complexity and nuance of each topic and delivered with candor and comedy to stay engaged and yearn for more. Fuck, we should put that on the wall. As always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by Many Faces Media. Fun fact, Max and 99 never know what I'm going to do at this point. Um, and the thing I want to do, I have to wait a minute. So I'm going to bring it back in a second. Just hold on. The show is lovingly produced by the great and powerful 99. Hi. Is that good? <laughs> you know I'm going to keep doing that every week. Well, last week you didn't do it. I thought maybe you gave up. Shouldn't me. I am not shitting you. I'm sorry. That's about a that. reference to Sweet Home Alabama for all my Reese Witherspoons out there. Mm. Yeah. Our theme music was <laughs> composed. We want to hear more about Sweet no, Home Alabama. Really, no, no, no. Oh, Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. We have new stuff coming from Tom. I'm so excited. As always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by Many Faces Media. You know, I've never actually understood that expression, but no, I'm not shitting you. And the show is hosted by Mad Larry and distributed by Barbax. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to unftrpod at gmail.com. Connect with us on social at unftrpod. Become a member at buymeacoffee.com slash unftr. Visit our book list at bookshop.org slash shop slash unftrpod. Get some native roasted coffee at unftr.com slash shop and read our essays on unftr.substack.com. Remember, it'll always be free. <laughs> I'll see you next week. <laughs> Bye.